Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Orwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this week, we're talking about what's new in Call of Cthulhu 7th edition. At the moment, we're recording this at the time when the release of the books is... Imminent. I want to say imminent, but I, certainly they've been printed, they've been bound, and they're just on the cusp of shipping. Whenever you say the pr- books have been bound... It always makes me think of a summon and bind spell, Scott. So I, I just think they've been summoned and somebody's bound them. I, I'm sorry, there's, a, there's another meaning? <laughs> I thought that's <laughs> that how books were produced. That, that could be how it works. Yeah. I don't know much about printing. It just, this is the reason why the project took so long, is because of the magic points and pal needed to do a summoning of that magnitude. I, I, I thought have... it was because they screwed up the binding pentacle and the entire factory got eaten. It takes a long time to read an Ecronomicon. Oh, very true. Hmm. I thought we weren't going to talk about the factory, but... Uh. <laughs> oh, fresh off the bat of getting back from Conception, on the 12th of March, we've got another convention coming up, a little bit close to home this time. Yeah, just about on my front doorstep. I can walk to this one. Lucky sod. <laughs> At least I have to get off. Oh, I only have to get in the car and five minutes up the road, so not as bad. But of course, we're talking about Concrete Cow. So if you're in the vicinity of Milton Keynes on the 12th of March, then come along. There'll be games for all, running morning, afternoon and evening. Yep, doors open at 9am, the first game slot starts at 10, admission costs £5, the last game slot finishes around 11pm. And all three of us will be running games, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if I can work out what I'm running, yes. Yeah, I'm, I might be running a little bit of Cold War, some Lamentations of the Flame Princess, and if I can have my arm twisted to stay for the last block, maybe some Heaven and Earth as well. Well, before we move on to the other segments, uh, we've had another iTunes review, which I believe Paul is ready to share with us. Yeah, we got one from RC August, and it reads, The best podcasts make you feel as though you're sat at the same table as the hosts, not able to contribute to the conversation, perhaps, but nodding along and laughing at the jokes. In practice, this, of course, can make you look insane on the bus. But the feeling of being involved is one I look for in those podcasts which make my vaunted favourites list. Excellent. How do you feel about that, Scott? You're on somebody's favourites list. I I feel simultaneously honoured and slightly afraid. The fact that we're spreading insanity is never a bad thing. But I would have thought sitting there talking to yourself on the bus is pretty much de rigueur. Well, basically, this seems to imply that our listenership is the loony on the bus. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't have it any other way. (laughs) He goes on to say, the good friends of Jackson Elias... Manage this in every episode, being often funny, imaginative, and despite an impressive list of professional credits, they never make claim to authority or insist on laying down the law. You haven't heard Scott off mic. (laughs) Yeah, there's a reason why we cut half that shit out. (laughs) It's basically like listening to a pub chat in the best possible way. Oh, God. Well, that's fantastic. That's very kind. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. I want to know what pub that is, to be fair. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'd spend more time in pubs if I could have conversations like that. Yeah. Well, you Damn can't right. notice stopping you, Scott. You, that's what you think. <laughs> I, I remember having some very odd chats in pubs when we played games that were set in uh, like the rooms above uh, pubs. We got some, yeah, odd looks, odd looks, to say the least. Yeah, no doubt, no <laughs> doubt. 
But if you are, you know, if you are minded to put a review on iTunes, then please do because uh, we welcome those. And also, if you have found our show through Drive Through, please do feel welcome to leave a review or a uh, a star rating because we have one dedicated. Uh, I hesitate to call them fan who seems obsessed with leaving us one star ratings on every show on there, don't they, Scott? Uh, it's fantastic. I mean, so, uh, sometimes as soon as the episode goes up on drive through, there's the one star review. He, he must love the show though, because he yeah. keeps listening to every episode. Clearly, I, it's it's either someone who misunderstands completely how the star rating works and really <laughs> likes it. Or, what the star is the best. Uh, yeah, or is absolutely dedicated in their hatred of us. Either way, I, I feel really quite honoured. I just keep thinking when the stars are right, personally, <laughs> or in this case, when the star is right. <laughs> okay, well, you know, if you are that guy... <laughs> hey, how you doing? <laughs> you are indeed that guy. <laughs> oh, no, no, seriously, if you are that guy, please contact us. We'd love to know what's going on. Seriously, I mean, th- th- this is a topic of some conversation between us sometimes, and we are fascinated. Anyway, enough of this. Let's move on to the word of the week. And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. And this week's Lovecraftian word of the week. Tentacle. Tentacles! (laughs) Tentacle. (laughs) Suddenly an impromptu burst of of, uh, shoggoth on the roof. (laughs) Yeah, it's taken us a long time to get around to this one. Uh-huh. How do we miss this? Well, they are pretty long, to be fair. They've got to, they've got to swiggle around. They've got to move around a lot. But anyway, we're distracting Matt from telling us what tentacle means, because, of course, we don't know. Oh, I've got a plush one on my wall. Of course you do. <laughs> tentacle. Any or various elongated flexible organs that occur near the mouth in many invertebrates and are used for feeding, grasping, etc. That etc. worries me. <laughs> Well, hentalicious, I think, is another word we should put in there. Or, any of the hairs on the leaf of an insectivorous plant that are used to capture prey. Or, something resembling a tentacle. No shit, Sherlock, of course it's going to resemble a fucking tentacle. Um, Especially in its ability to reach out or grasp. Got a definition that's like green. Green is like green. (laughs) Something resembling a tentacle. It it means if you're using it as uh, a metaphor. So, for example, if you talk about you know the the tentacles of uh, say the CIA reaching through the intelligence community around the world, you're not describing an actual physical tentacle, but you're using the tentacle in a metaphorical sense. So this appears forty three times. Count them, folks. 43 times in Lovecraft's fiction. So if anybody tells you, you know, there's not many tentacles, there are 43 of them. That's a lot. You see, this actually surprised me because I'd bought into the idea that Lovecraft didn't actually talk about tentacles that much. You bought into the big lie. Yeah, because, I mean, you associate tentacles obviously with Cthulhu. Um, which is, you know, the big classic bit of Lovecraft iconography. You know the kind of people that tell you that Lovecraft didn't write about tentacles? They're the same kind of people that say Vikings didn't have horns on their helmets or that witches weren't burnt. Yeah. It's those kind of people, Scott. <laughs> you, you mean correct people. Well, 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 you've just debunked that. Yeah. You've I, just proven that's not true. I was concentrating on the fact it was one more than the meaning of life, the universe, and everything. Therefore, it had some kind of cosmic significance. Oh. But you had to bring in the helmets. 
to be fair, a good number of the uses here are from the very detailed descriptions of elder things in the Mountains of Madness. There's a, a hell of a lot more of them in there than there are in the Call of Cthulhu. I, I think, in fact, I should have actually checked this ahead of time. I'm not entirely sure the word tentacle appears in the Call of Cthulhu. Shall we take a look at how Lovecraft actually did use the word tentacle? From the Lurking Fear. Shrieking, slithering, torrential shadows of red, viscous madness chasing one another through endless, ensanguined corridors of purple, fulgurous sky. Formless phantasms and kaleidoscopic mutations of a ghoulish, remembered scene. Forests of monstrous, overnourished oaks with serpent roots twisting and sucking unnameable juices from an earth verminous with millions of cannibal devils. Mound-like tentacles groping from underground nuclei of polypus perversion. Insane lightning over malignant ivied walls and demon arcades choked with fungus vegetation. And from Dreams in the Witch House. How could he be sure he would not land on that green-litten hillside of a far planet, on the tessellated terrace above the city of tentacled monsters somewhere beyond the galaxy? or in the spiral black vortices of that ultimate void of chaos wherein reigns the mindless demon sultan Azathoth. And from the shadow out of time, then superimposed upon these pictures were frightful momentary flashes of a non-visual consciousness involving desperate struggles, a writhing free from clutching tentacles of whistling wind, an insane bat-like flight through the half-solid air, a feverish burrowing through the cyclone whipped dark, and a wild stumbling and scrambling over fallen masonry. And now on to our main topic. What exactly is new in Call of Cthulhu 7th edition? Well, as we mentioned at the start of the show, 7th edition is coming out imminently, and we thought this would be a good time to go back and revisit some of the new stuff that's in 7th edition. We did a number of episodes back in our fledgling days, back when we were recording in the shed, using some fairly shitty recording equipment. And, yeah, it, it perhaps wasn't our best work. But we thought this would be a good chance to go back and maybe not go into the same kind of detail at this stage as we did in those episodes, but at least do what we didn't do then and provide a very high-level overview of what is different in 7th Ed. You've played 6th Ed or, or older editions, and you're coming to 7th edition, this is what you're going to get, this is what's different. Just to be clear though, we're only going to talk about the changes that are in the Keeper rulebook. There is now the Investigator Handbook, which is a whole separate topic. There's lots and lots of new stuff in there, and we will do an episode about that at a later date. Having gone through all the previous editions, if you were to compare, say, 4 even through until 6, there's not much of the actual text that's physically changed. I'd say that's probably one of the biggest overall changes in 7th edition, that nearly the whole thing's been rewritten from the ground up. Yeah, I think the main parts that weren't rewritten were the kind of monster descriptions for the large part, the, you know, some of the spells. I mean, the, where there are mechanics, we kind of revised those. Most of the rule sections are, are completely rewritten, and the introduction is... Again, when when I first looked at the introduction, I kind of wanted to keep what Sandy had written, and Mike and I just revised it, really. But one of the big remits with this edition was to try to make it as newbie-friendly as possible. 
So this is uh, there's there's lots of examples of play in there. There's lots of box text. Uh, some parts have been expanded out a bit to clarify rules, particularly new rules, but also stuff that's been there all along. What we talked about in the early days of this was the fact that Call of Cthulhu, fairly unusually, I think, has a good chance of being someone's first role-playing game. There's, you, know, you hear stories the whole time of people who've never played any other role-playing game starting out with Call of Cthulhu, people picking up the, the Keeper rulebook, and this is how they learn how to be a GM. Including some listeners. Mm. Um, we had feedback from some people who hadn't played Call of Cthulhu, uh, and they listened to the show you know, as they were getting into it. And, and I know quite a few people on Reddit have also posted uh, with regard to that. It's been a, an interesting development of, in role-playing games over the last 20 years. I mean, the games that we got into back in the 80s, they always took their time to explain to people what a role-playing game was, what you did at the table. Sorry, I say always, usually. Um, they didn't always do it very well, but you see a lot of role-playing games published you know, over the last 20 years where it's just either that that's not addressed or it's, you know, you want to learn what a role-playing game is, find a gamer and ask them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the minor things I wanted that always rankled with me was this expression of zero, zero. It's a kind of a, we know as experienced role-players, zero, zero means 100. But if you ask them, you know, the person in the street, what does zero, zero mean? It means zero. Um, so it's just a, it was a kind of bit of jargon and just tried to cut down on that jargon and, you know, speak to the speak to the, the reader that was new to the book. Yeah, right down to there are actually photographs in the book now that show the different dice results so that people who have never used polyhedral dice or roll percentage dice or, uh, you know, particularly when it gets around to the use of bonus and penalty dice, which we'll get to a bit later. A couple of things had to go because of space. We wanted to keep the story, the Call of Cthulhu, in the book, but it takes up quite a bit of space and it is freely available to anybody online. Also, the haunting, the classic scenario, that's now in the quick start rules, so it's there. So we figure that most people who are coming to the game, they can get the free quick start rules, they get that scenario, they play it. If they want to then buy the book, they buy the book. They don't need to buy the haunting again. The previous editions have been somewhat an accumulation of content, and it seemed very important to restructure the book. So we've gone to to great lengths to kind of restructure the book in as usable a format as, as we could. So we've put the reference material to the back and the rules, uh, you know, toward the front. And of course, the other big change isn't to the text. It's the fact that the, the layout has been completely revised. The, the new edition is in colour. Uh, it's got all new artwork or almost entirely new artwork in it and is significantly more visually attractive, I think, than any other edition before. Part one, what's new in character creation? One of the traits I've found with 7th edition is that it takes away a lot of the maths at the table. Um, particularly when we get onto bonus and penalty die, there's no shift in skills anymore. You don't have to suddenly think, well, what's X plus Y? Or any of the other, com- well, not complicated, but any other mental arithmetic you have to do. And having stats as percentages rather than ranging between 3 and 18... Um, instead of just timesing them up by five right from the very start, is pretty much the first indication of that you have in the book. It certainly keeps it consistent now throughout the game. It, the stats are now treated in exactly the same way as skills. Uh, you, you roll them in the same way, they're treated in the same way. And the divide before was always a fairly artificial one. I think the only time I'd ever seen 
um, stats used in otherwise in London Times 5 is maybe if you're drowning, that it used to be, well, you start off making a, um, a con times five, then it's times four, then it's times three, then it's times two, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you have to do the maths every bloody time, um, every bloody roll. Whereas now you have just the straight hundred skill and then divisions between whether it's a half the skill or a fifth of the skill. Those numbers are already on the sheet. You don't have to calculate them every time. It means there's more numbers on the sheet, but it seemed like that was the most user-friendly way to do it. I know some people have said it makes the sheet look very uh, cluttered and complex. I think with the sheets that Dean Engelhart did, uh, they're actually fairly unobtrusive. Um, certainly, I don't find they take up a lot of real estate on the sheet, and I don't find it any harder to read personally than the old sheets. And also, the sheets do all the maths for you as well. Mm. Yeah, actually, that's a good point. If you're using the electronic PDFs that are on the Chaosium website, all of the derived stats, all of the you know the halves and the fifths and so on, which we'll get to in a moment, everything like that is done for you automatically by the PDF. There was some debate about luck among players, whether it should be associated with POW or whether it should be associated with, some people said, with appearance and so on. In the end, we came down with having it as a 3d6 roll times five. Oh. So it's the random amount of luck that you get. POW is no longer an uber stat. Oh. <laughs> That's actually a good point because... Power was doing a lot of things already. It was uh, it was responsible for your magic points. It was responsible for your starting San. Uh, you sometimes make rolls against it in its own right. And for it to then govern luck as well, I mean, that made it the single most powerful stat in the game. And it's why I always put my single highest roll straight in that stat. There's a new stat called Build, which combines your size and strength into a, well, a build stat, which factors into the combat rolls. It's very closely related in the way it's derived to damage bonus, but it, it serves a subtly different purpose. Another change is that not everyone has the same movement rate anymore. Movement rate is now related to you know, how big you are, how dexterous you are, how strong you are in relation to each other, plus how old your character is. It seemed a bit weird that everybody had the same movement rate previously. So now it, it basically comes down to 7, 8, or 9 for start for most starting characters. Yes, and possibly lower than that once you start getting over 40, as I can attest to. You're saying uh, life goes downhill at 40? Oh, God. Well, yeah. you're coming on to the, the effects of age are slightly more pronounced than they used to be. Not that much. It's mainly that app goes down a bit quicker. Which, again, I'll attest to. <laughs> I don't know. Some people can age, age like a fine wine. Yes, and some of us age like fine fish. <laughs> also, with occupations now, there's a, a fairly subtle but I think important change in there, which is not every occupation relies solely on education uh, to determine how many skill points you get for your occupational skill points. This was something I quite like to see, that it suddenly made the choice of occupation a bit more, a bit more important, something that had a lot more impact upon the sheet itself. And it meant that uh, appearance, which was quite often almost a dump stat in Call of Cthulhu, suddenly became important because your, your physical attractiveness suddenly then gave you certain skill points in occupations where the first impression that you make on people or the social aspects of it are core to the occupation. You didn't have every actor being Quasimodo. <laughs> yes. We also have the new element called backstory, which is basically all those things off the second sheet of your uh, investigator sheet that you used to have in previous editions. But now there are various tables that you can roll on 
for inspiration or randomizer to, to get backstory elements. Or, or you can select them if you prefer. Absolutely. But the, but the nice thing about rolling them sometimes is, I, I think you actually make this point in the text, don't you, that it can lead you to create character types or think of your character in different ways that you wouldn't normally use. Uh, you, you can be surprised by the character you end up playing in in very interesting ways. Like, you know, if you're an important person, if you're rolling that up, suddenly, you know, it turns out to be your character's child and you hadn't thought of your character as, you know, having children. That suddenly might change an awful lot about I mean, not only their living arrangements, but perhaps even what they're fighting for. And we explored this a little more in episode two a long time back. I listened to some of that today, and the sound quality isn't great. But if you want to brave it, then be my guest. You're really selling it there, Paul. I know, but <laughs> what can I do? Again, another aspect that I quite like in terms, in this case, rather than going for making it easier by taking maths out, but making it seem less like my day job, that money is partially being abstracted, <laughs> that no longer do you have to worry about, oh, I make X many thousand dollars a year, I have this much in my wallet. No, forget that crap. So you have various levels of living standards based on your credit rating. And also, if you don't want to go through the full character creation process, there are a few options now for doing things a bit more simply and easily. My favourite in there, which is one you said you'd borrowed from Sandy Peterson, wasn't it, Paul? Yeah, sure. The the one we ended up calling the quickfire character creation rules. That was from Sandy, yeah. Yeah, and that's, that's where you just have a certain number of percentages that you assign to your, uh, your skills. There's a certain number of percentages you assign to your stats. Uh, it takes you... I use this an awful lot when I'm creating pre-gens for convention games, when I'm creating NPCs for published scenarios. And it means that I can create a, a fully fleshed out character in about you know, three or four minutes, as opposed to you know the ten minutes it used to take me. I almost always default back to the quickfire method. Previously, where you're looking at the large degree of variance with dice rolls and the randomness that comes in there... Everyone is on a level playing field. They've got all the same um, number of points attributed across across all their attributes. Yeah, and you'd get this big bundle of like 300 skill points that you've got to share out among their occupational skills and then some among their uh, their personal skills. And if, if you're just doing a pre-gen, it's like, oh, God, that takes ages. Sandy sort of sits down and says, oh, don't bother adding it onto the base skills. Just stick these numbers in. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, if he says it's all right, I guess it's okay. <laughs> but, but the president does it, it's not illegal. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But of course, the original method is still there for the people who prefer that. And there is also a more detailed point-by system for the people who don't like randomness but don't want the simplicity of the quickfire method. Uh, this is something I've seen come up a number of times on internet forums where people have said the thing that they don't like about BRP in general and Call of Cthulhu in particular is the randomness of the stats. Well, you know, if you don't want to roll randomly for your, your characters, you don't have to anymore. And for those that are familiar with old editions... You'll find a familiar face in 7th edition. Yes, your old friend Harvey Walters is alive and well and living in pages of 7th edition. It, it wouldn't be Call of Cthulhu without Harvey, would it? I was going to say alive and well, but maybe not for long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, he turns up in a lot of the examples of play, as, as he always did. And poor Harvey does not have an easy life. He goes crazy, he uh, he reads tomes, he meets monsters. He, he gets, gets the shit kicked out of him. He does. <laughs> Part two, what's new with skills? 
We spent some time talking about skills back in episode 28, though admittedly that was probably a bit less to do with uh, what's new in 7th edition, and more just about the use of skills in role-playing games. This is also something that's had quite a bit of variation between the different editions, that the overall skill list has changed a lot. Mm. And you had some skills that were incredibly specific, things like debating, I think, was a skill that was in a much older edition. That isn't here anymore. You've got skills that are a lot more broad in their definition now and have a lot more use across more ranges of instances. Yeah, there was debate, there was oratory. There was bargain. Yeah. They have subtle differences, but they serve largely the same purpose. Yeah, they're very specific uses of general social skills. Personally, one of my favourites that's been truncated or at least put into just one one or two skills, combat. Why the hell do you need kick, headbutt, fist, punch, so many different manoeuvres when you can just go unarmed fighting. Yeah, or fighting brawl, as it's called in it now. But yeah. but yes, yeah, I mean, that simplifies things greatly. When I played a lot of Call of Cthulhu back in the 80s, and I wanted to try to create a character that was combat-optimised, you know, obviously the best thing to do was put points in kick. It had a uh, It had a lower base charge, so you had to spend more points in it, but it did more damage. So you'd end up with these characters who couldn't really use any other part of their body, but would just go around kicking things. And so they get that D6 damage, as opposed to the wimpy D3 that they get from punching stuff. Or you turn them Glaswegian and they all have a massive headbutt skill. Yeah, but that was, I think, a D4, wasn't it? And it was never as good as kick. And it was a rubbish starting skill level. It was about 10%. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, yeah, kick was the the big powerful one. Wasn't it Lucy who went kicking her way through all the characters in Walking the Waste? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah, oh, with her character with the D6 damage bonus where she was just going around doing one-shot kills with her feet. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, a number of other skills have been simplified. So, for example, hide and sneak had now been uh, concatenated into stealth. The interpersonal skills have been shaken up a bit. There's a couple of new ones in there. So there's intimidate, which I love because it's something I, <laughs> I don't know, I think this says something bad about me as a person, but I love playing characters with high intimidate skills. They just all end up with high intimidate. <laughs> what about charm, Scott? Do you like charm? I've never used it myself. <laughs> what about your characters, though? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, that's, that's, that's so obvious. Line. But you'll be happy to hear Fast Talk is still in there. Because it wouldn't be Call of Cthulhu without Fast Talk. Or Spot Hidden. Or Library Use, all of which is still there. Part three, what's changed in the game system? And one thing we we should sort of mention at this stage, we touched upon it briefly with the characteristics, is the fact that, again, you've got these half and these fifth levels on the sheets. So at various times, you may be asked to make a hard skill roll for something that's hard, or an extreme skill roll for something that's extremely difficult. It's almost Uh, as if the words are appropriate there, Scott. I know. (laughs) One of the things that having characteristics as percentages meant was that it was easier to have opposed roles. We've got these levels of achievement in the levels of success with the, with the skill roles. So you can roll, an opponent can roll, and you can see who gets the best level of success. And one of the things the new opposed role mechanism means is that there is no longer the resistance table in there. Instead, you just roll your dice and compare the results. I know some people really liked the old resistance table, but there was no getting around the fact that for most people, not everyone, but for most people, you did actually have to stop and look at a table and try to work stuff out, which perhaps slowed things down a bit during play. But now you you just roll those dice, compare, and that's it. We've also mentioned about bonus and penalty die. Again, where previously you may have had, oh, have a 30% shift to your skill if you've done something really good, or like a 10% shift. Yep. 
don't have to worry about adding up the math, um, adding up the maths on your sheet anymore. You just roll two sets of dice, tens digits. This is. If it's a bonus, you take the better one, i.e., the lower one. If it's a penalty die, you take the higher one, the one that's not so good. Yeah, and again, that just simplifies and speeds things up a bit. Yeah, because you're not messing around with modifiers. Also new in seventh edition, we have pushed rolls. Uh, whereby if you failed at something, you can say how you're doing it again, how you're trying harder, how you're bringing something else in and having another go, and you get to have a second attempt at the roll with the stakes raised. So now if you fail, something worse is going to happen. The example I always use at the game table when I'm explaining how push mechanic works is that you're trying to get into a nightclub and you're talking to the bouncer on the front door. At the minute, you make your persuade roll, you fail by, let's say, 10 points. You think, Ah, okay, but I have quite a good skill. I'm going to try. I'd like to try again. You have to justify what you're doing to try and get another bite at the cherry. You pull out some money. You hand it to him. You make your persuade roll. You better hope you pass, because if you fail, the gloves are off in terms of consequences. Mm. Depending on what the context is, this could be finding yourself in the back of an, um, in a back alley with a knife in your guts, waking up in A&E, or the bouncer just putting his fist in your face by saying, no, those shoes still look fucking ugly. Piss off. And we do actually explain pushed rolls in a lot of detail in episode four. It ended up being an optional rule, but you can now spend your luck. And yeah, I use this an awful lot in games uh, myself. The idea is that you know, your luck track now can go down. For example, if you start off with 80 points of luck and you're making a really important combat role at some stage, trying to, you know, fighting, you're fighting for your life, there is some slavering beastie about to rip your throat out and you want to make a dodge roll to make sure your throat stays where it should be, you miss that roll by five points. Uh, you can spend five points of luck, take your luck down to 75, and uh, then you know, that roll actually succeeds. Some people have said that this makes it very pulpy, it stops you know, there being the option of failure and so on. But what I've found is that this is a glorious trap. Because in Call of Cthulhu, I, I don't know about other keepers, I actually end up calling for a lot of luck rolls. The evil side of me loves waiting until people have spent a lot of their luck on these various things. You know, they've spent five, ten points here and there, and it all adds up. And sooner or later, they might be down to 20 luck. And there's something really important that they want, something really important on the line, you know, perhaps even a life and death situation. And in which case, so, yeah, I'll go around and say, right, who's got the lowest luck in the party? Okay, you make that luck roll now. <laughs> I think there's a perception out there among some people that it's about helping the players to succeed more often, these changes in pushing and spending luck. It's really not. It's about helping to make a more dramatic story. So the pushing... You know, you're having to risk stuff to, to push a push a roll. Oh yeah. And with the spending luck, it, it, you can soon burn through it. And like Scott says, you you can end up in some pretty bad situations. Then, it's, as a keeper, I love it when people push rolls and when they end up spending loads of luck. So the, the one line uh, summary I'm taking away from this is: you've effectively given the players more rope to hang themselves. With. Exactly. Part four, what's new in combat? Now we're on to Matt's favourite section of combat. Yay. Feel the enthusiasm. <laughs> it's now done with opposed roles, so it takes advantage of this new mechanic of being able to roll against each other and use the difficulty levels and so on. Hopefully it produces a more condensed combat experience for the players. Yeah, that's certainly my experience. There are far fewer exchanges now where nothing happens. 
And this was always one of the things that put me off Call of Cthulhu before, that, you know, if you had, for example, a fist fight between two low-skill characters, you just end up with that swing, miss, swing, miss, swing, miss, swing, miss. And, uh, yeah, it got even worse when he brought Dodge in. Uh, You'd finally get that connecting blow and someone would say, oh, can I roll Dodge there? Oh, okay, right, that's a miss. And our old friend Grapple has transformed into combat manoeuvres. This is basically doing anything that isn't just inflicting damage. Um, so it could be pushing somebody off out of a window. It could be uh, disarming them. It could be, yeah, it could be grappling them to the floor, whatever. Yeah, throwing sand in their eyes, that kind of thing. It makes me wonder if defenestration should have been a skill. I mean, <laughs> we use it a lot in Horror and Orient Express. This is one thing with you that I do like about combat, and I never thought I'd hear myself saying those <laughs> words. Um, yeah, we converted Matt. No, no, the fact is blissfully fucking quicker. That's the thing <laughs> that I was going <laughs> to yeah. say. Again, I, one perception I've seen on a number of forums is the fact that this somehow makes the game more pulpy or more action-packed or somehow safer for the characters. It is none of these things. It is as deadly as it ever was. I'd say Uh, deadlier, to be honest. Yeah, because, yeah, you're less likely to end up with, you know, no consequence being there. And if you're all an extreme success, that's a lot of damage you suddenly have coming your way. It is. And just because there's more stuff happening as the result of a roll doesn't mean that this is inherently a more action-packed game. It just means you're getting those combats out of the way with faster. Although we said combat is still deadly, which it is, there's a greater chance that you'll end up unconscious now. Unconscious, wounded, on the ground, perhaps rescued by your friends, perhaps taken captive by your enemies. But this does take care of one of the sort of what-the-fuck moments I had in Call of Cthulhu years back, when I worked out that the chances of anyone surviving a boxing match were pretty low. <laughs> yes. Yeah, the, the, the boxing matches you know, just tended to be you know, punch, 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 someone hit zero hit points eventually, and they're dying. I mean, they, 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 they might be lucky and just land on zero hit points and be unconscious, but if they take a few more points than that, they're probably dying. And, yeah, I mean, why would anyone ever be a boxer in Call of Cthulhu? I mean, it is a dangerous pastime, but it's not that dangerous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah you, you do get through the occasional bout without someone dying. There is a revision to the healing rules, the automatic fire rules, and some optional rules for those who want a bit more crunch to the game. We tried to keep the, the overview of the chapter just to the, the, the essentials, and then the optional extras that you can put in, like some herbs and spices, they're there at the end. <laughs> So if you want you know, a, a nice light game, don't use the optional rules. If you want something a bit more complex, the optional rules are there. Yeah. Ironically, thinking of herbs and spices, that's one of the options at the back of the combat section in regards to other damage. Poisons, for example. Yes. I think you've been... I'm not having your cooking, Matt, if that's herbs and spices to you. Oh, I, I like fugu as much as the next man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not coming around when you're preparing it. Oh, and don't be bringing fish in again. <laughs> you think what? I didn't know what Fugu was, didn't you? Uh, <laughs> I've seen that Simpsons episode. <laughs> Fugu me! <laughs> but yeah, you did touch upon the other forms of damage, and so there is a table there that gives you guidelines for what to do if your character falls out of a tree, gets hit by a train. If there are miscellaneous forms of damage that you, you don't have stats for in this, this scenario... Just consult this table and you know just how badly you can hurt them. Somebody on the Yogg-Sothoth forum today had figured out that given the uh, the stat blocks for Dark Young, if you rolled the minimum size and strength for a Dark Young and you got the biggest human character you could get, 
they could actually wrestle a dark young. But that was actually one of our listeners who spotted that. That was Daniel. Ah, uh, right. From Australia. Oh, yes. very good. Well, well noticed. I want to tackle a bonsai tree now. <laughs> <laughs> bonsai dark young. Oh, God. <laughs> Somebody did come back with the uh, the pun. This was obviously a dark young of oh. shrub niggerath. God. Boom, boom. Part five, the all-new chase chapter. There is an entirely new chapter that covers uh, chases. Now, this is something we we talked about, uh, or at least Paul and I talked about, I think, in the fairly early stages of of 7th edition, which is the fact that there were some very perfunctory chase mechanics in Call of Cthulhu before. But, you know, this is a game where running away really should be as exciting as having a fight. And if you think about the the source fiction, one of the great action scenes that Lovecraft wrote is the chase scene from The Shadow of Innsmouth. And it, it always seemed to me a great oversight that it was much more exciting in Call of Cthulhu to have a fight than it was to run away. But the new rules cover uh, foot chases, vehicle chases, uh, and this also, uh, in the vehicle chases, this is the other place where the build stat comes in. Because vehicles have got build as well. So, you know, if you have um, a huge articulated lorry and you run over a mini with it, the the size difference between the two is going to matter. Yeah. And you can kind of pitch vehicles against monsters to some kind of, you know, using the, the build stat as a kind of abstracted measure of sort of size and bulk. Yeah, running running a motorcycle into a dark young isn't going to end well. I was going to say, having driven an Arctic lorry and felt the force of that thing and trying to slow it down when 30 miles an hour seems a hell of a lot faster, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the core mechanics are fairly simple in this. In fact, I think this is unusual for the chapters in, in that the optional rules in this chapter are probably longer than the main chapter. Part six, what's new with sanity? However, moving on from one of my least favourite subjects, and combat. Onto one more, definitely more up my street, sanity. And again, we did do an episode all about this back on episode 11. Again, the sound quality is shit. <laughs> You're really selling it. Uh, Some of the sanity effects still kick in the same as they used to. So if you lose one fifth of your sanity points uh, or you lose five points at one, in one go, but the effects are now reconfigured a little, represented. So that we have things like bouts of madness and delusions and so on. The keeper it gives it a little more structure for the keeper to actually hit the characters with the insanities. Yeah, and some of these things can have really interesting impacts on the game. So the bouts of madness may mean that you know your character wanders off on his or her own, sees something absolutely horrible, goes uh, off the deep end as a result. And then, you know, sort of wakes up uh, in the wood some hours later, you know, covered in blood and scratches, not all of the blood is their own, with no memory of what's happened. And, you know, suddenly have to try to piece together, you know, what happened during the last six hours. I like also that it's a way to mess with perceptions of the player, um, that you take them out of the room and describe what they're doing, like, classic example with uh, with Paul was describing to me, I want to get a series of uh, gas tanks full of petrol so that we might, if we need to set fire to something, that we can uh, we can have a load of gasoline on hand. I come back in thinking I've got two gas tanks full, 
and everyone Paul's described what everyone else sees, and it's my God, man, what the hell happened to you? Well, they're just gas tanks. What the hell? Didn't disturb mention the fact that they were full of blood, or that I looked like I'd been pulled through a hedge backwards. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And that sort of touches upon the delusions as well, in that, you know, if your character is unhinged for a little time because of of what he or she has seen, the Keeper has license to then describe things as... Unreliably. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah. And this was part of wanting to get away from the kind of clinical approach to mental illness that, that, that Call of Cthulhu had been sort of heading towards... And, and, yeah, it was a bizarre one as well, because in a lot of cases, those use of clinical terms uh, was actually completely unrealistic. I, I can't remember, there was one of the uh, yeah, earlier editions where you could have the onset of psychotic illnesses um, as a result of sand loss, which just, I, I don't know, that really rubbed me up the wrong way, because that's not how they work. And being afflicted with depression or catatonia as a player character, I mean, what do you do with that? So we tried to reflect what you get in in the fiction that we see in films and stories where their perception of the real world is at odds. And it's it's not even a representation of something real like PTSD. This is a purely fictional thing. I, I don't know. For me, it works because I, I've seen some people, you know, not being very happy with this. But for me, it works because if you accept the idea that the mythos is an intrusion into our reality, it's an affront to human perception and, and senses, that it rewires the bro- way our brains work when we encounter it, then, of course, the effects that it's going to have are going to be, you know, perhaps bear some relation to something like PTSD, but at the same time, you know, it perfectly explains why it's something totally different. Part 7. What's new with Mythos Tomes and Magic? The Mythos Tomes section, it's been revised, but it's, you know, it's all the old books that you know and love with similar kinds of effects and similar kinds of rules for those. That works hand hand in hand with the magic. There's a reduced number of spells in the book, but uh, our good friend here, Matt, you've been working on a big compendium of spells, which I think Chaosim has already announced. I think we mentioned in a previous episode. Yeah, Mike announced it at Dragon Meat that um, the grand grimoire of Mythos spells is going to be coming with over 500 individual spells in there. <laughs> There's, even that's whittled down the total number a lot, because they're well over 700 by the time that you got through um, got through all of the supplements. But a lot of them had similar effects. A lot of them, and even ones that you found in 6th edition, came from very specific scenarios where they had a very specific effect. Like A lot of the ones in 6th edition came from Mask of Neartha, the Tepin Horror on the Orient Express, and even stated they are, mem- uh, they are used by particular factions and particular cults. They're not going to have widespread use in games really beyond those campaigns. But there is quite a bit of advice there for how to cast spells, not real ones, <laughs> and no, the effects no, of no, casting no. and the effects of casting them wrongly. But of course, if you buy the special edition, ah, uh, yes, we'll be kickstarting that soon. Yeah, I thought that was the temple edition. That's where you get I signed up. Where you get it. to learn the real magic. Mm-hmm. Is that what you're talking about, Scott? <laughs> yeah. One of the biggest changes with spells, I think, is that you only have to have to roll for them once that you have your initial casting role, and if you've got through that, you know how to cast this stuff. Unless this um, spell makes a specific requirement that you have to make a pal roll or any other type of roll in there, it just happens. That makes some spells incredibly deadly. And of course, if you don't know a spell, or you're trying to improvise some kind of magical effect, 
you can now use the Cthulhu Mythos skill to do this. This is a very, very dangerous thing to do because people don't tend to have a lot of Cthulhu Mythos skill. And again, like other skills, you can push it, and if you push it and it goes wrong, and you are attempting to warp reality in some hideous and evil way, that's not going to end well for you. Yeah, we talk about that on another episode with uh, very good sound quality. Yes, episode 13. Another variation on how spells are presented is that previously you would have a spell, let's say Consume Lightness is a good example, where it does the one effect. With 7th edition, you now have a deeper version of the spell where it has optional extras. Things like, not only do you consume their appearance, you consume their memories, their personality, their mannerisms, and you can become a complete copy of them. This just adds, again, a little bit more of a carrot dangling in front of the players, I think. That it gives them, do you want, how deep down that rabbit hole do you want to go? Part 8, What's New with Gods and Monsters. The chapter on monsters is largely going to be familiar to anybody familiar with old uh, editions of the game, I think. They're restructured somewhat, so you've got a section of mythos monsters, you've got a section of gods and deities, uh, including great old ones and so on. Then you've got a new section called traditional horrors to separate them from the mundane animals. Um, so that includes you know, your, your old favourites of vampires and werewolves and zombies and so on. Ghosts with a little bit of advice on using those in um, Call of Cthulhu games. And then, as you mentioned, you do have a section on animals as well. Yep. And Including jewels. There's a shark in there. <laughs> but I'd like to draw your attention to the fact that shark, not a fish, is it? No, it isn't. No. They There's don't... no fish in there. <laughs> There's no, no fish in the book. But I no, believe... sh- technically, sharks aren't fish because they don't have swim bladders and they yeah. don't have skeletons. But I believe if a track fish does goes wrong, you do have the chance of summoning a shark as well. But you well. can't summon a fish. There's no fish in the book. <laughs> I, I didn't actually search the text, but I should do that. I don't think there's a mention of fish in the book. <laughs> but one, uh, thing, one thing you do mention about classifications, actually, when you're saying there's not in the book, you mentioned about the fact great old ones are in the deity section. All of the classifications of old deities, monsters and such, like lesser independent race, servitor race, and all that kind of stuff, has also been taken out. There's a little bit at the end of the, the monsters chapter that's as again as a kind of an optional section if you like that stuff you know it's there it's presented and it's kind of put in context but it doesn't kind of taint the rest of the the monsters and gods chapter yeah i mean it's it's one of these oddities that's come into call of cthulhu or in, in fact was in call of cthulhu from the early days but actually owes almost nothing to lovecraft all, all these classifications well there, there's a bit of derlith in there but it even goes beyond what derlith did and yeah, I, I'm, I'm personally, I'm really glad it's gone because it just always seemed artificial. Yeah, odd, a, a poor fit for the game. Part nine: A look at the new chapter about playing the game and the two new scenarios. The book's rounded off with a couple of chapters. One being a chapter of advice for the keeper uh, about how to run the game. Just words of advice from myself and Mike about distasteful themes and how to handle them, when to roll dice, about creating cohesive groups of player characters, about how to use published scenarios. Um, There's a revised version of the idea roll, which takes it in quite a different direction. Advice on how to handle clues. Just a general toolkit, for, especially for new keepers starting out, as to some good uh, tips and tricks of the trade. And we wrap up the new stuff with a couple of scenarios, one by our very own... Mr. Sanderson. 
amidst the ancient trees. Yeah, I, I was really, really glad to get the chance to write uh, write the scenario there. Um, actually inspired by a walk around the lake at our, um, our old works building. <laughs> That's a, a great scenario. It's kind of very much a, a one-off, I mm-hmm. think. And I mean, it could be run over a, a few sessions, but um, sort of self-contained. Whereas the next one, The Crimson Letters by our good friend Alan Bly. I mean, again, it's a, it's a, a scenario that could be run over several sessions, but it could easily kind of bleed out into a, an ongoing campaign. There's quite a few yeah. things in there you can kind of pick up on and both those scenarios are a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, with Crimson Letters, it's set around the Miskatonic University, so it, it might be a good way to actually start off a Miskatonic University campaign and, and get investigators drawn into that strange little world. And amidst the ancient trees, it's a more contained, I think. Yeah, I remember when we were discussing about what type of scenarios you wanted in the book, that you wanted to have a variation upon different themes. So I went with a more easy, very again, very newbie-friendly, that A leads to B leads to C. Yeah. Not that it's railroaded, because you could, in theory, go, like I know several groups I ran it for, went A, D, E, B, yeah. <laughs> and moved yeah. around a lot. Because I think, as a starting keeper, you might not want to jump straight into Crimson Letters. No, I, I'd suggest that you start off with The Haunting, then Amidst the Ancient Trees, and then Crimson Letters. Yeah, yeah so that'd be a good uh, progression. Yeah, slowly getting more degrees of complexity or more degrees of variation. And of course, there is a, a final set of appendices. And one of the things that's in there is conversion notes uh, b- between 7th edition and older versions of Call of Cthulhu, which help you, you know, if you've got characters who were created using 6th edition, for example, this will allow you to you know, adapt them so that they become 7th ed characters. And if you've totally failed in your role as Keeper in the old games and they still have characters that are alive, they can then <laughs> convert them to 7th edition and then you can kill them off in the first session. It's only fair. Because remember, as Keeper, you can kill them at any time. And finally, in our completely unbiased opinion, what do we think of it all? Well, now that we've rattled through the contents, what do we actually think about what's changed in Call of Cthulhu as, as completely unbiased uh, participants <laughs> in, in the, the whole thing? For the most part, it's a lot of change for the better. There's a couple of bits like combat, still combat, I still hate it. Chases, for for personal preference, because I run a lot of one-shots, they can be a bit clunky and very time-consuming in a one-shot without having done a lot of prep. Um, but on the whole, the vast majority of stuff in there is a thoroughly improvement. You know, again, yeah, not exactly unbiased here because I've been playing it with Paul since the early days. But the feedback that I've seen from people who've played 7th edition you know, a few times now, got to grips with it, is that most people I've spoken to do prefer it. They they find that it's, you know, particularly combat is sped up, that there's, uh, it's not as fiddly as it used to be, that it's just a bit more streamlined. I probably won't contribute to this part, <laughs> but uh, I hope that people like it. But it will be interesting to see what the, the larger scale reaction is going to be, because obviously I think the pool of people playing it has been fairly limited so far. I think it's the hardcore that are using the PDFs. Yeah. Uh, but once the print editions are in people's hands, then I think there's going to be a much larger audience. And we should start seeing, I, I think, you know, some more interesting reactions. Hmm. So a question we'd like to put to you, the listener, is would you like to hear more about anything in 7th edition? What I'm thinking of is not so much a an episode on explaining, you know, how you create a character, but almost an episode that explores some of the things that we do with the rules, the applications that we put them to, rather, rather than just a cold kind of uh, reiteration of them. 
Yeah, as we've mentioned, we have done a number of earlier episodes that go into the details of some of these rules, and we don't necessarily want to go back and tread over all ground. Um, that, I mean, that said, we've learnt a bit more as podcasters, uh, we've got better equipment now. If there is anything along those lines that that we can revisit in a different form, just so you know we're not doing the same things again, if you've got any ideas, let us know. Uh, the other thing, of course, to bear in mind is that Paul has done a series of videos uh, on YouTube. They're linked off the website, and I'll, I'll link them in the show notes, that explain how the quick start rules work in quite a lot of detail. Everything from character creation to the game mechanics, combat, etc., now, obviously, this is just the quick start rules. You have mentioned, Paul, haven't you, that you're planning on revisiting this? Um... I'm intending to do videos based on the whole of the 7th edition rules um, to kind of present those. Um, and when I get time, I might do some of those. <laughs> but I, I guess the point is that we don't necessarily want to do the same thing on the podcast as Paul's sure. doing on those videos. No, that's very much just trying to get across the rules quickly and concisely to somebody who you know is perhaps going to be reading them so they can watch the video get a sense of what they're about and then and then read it in more detail and have a have an overview to begin with and you know some examples on screen as we're talking about seventh edition it would be a good time to mention that we do actually have two upcoming episodes all about the history of seventh edition how it came to be where we're joined by mike mason these episodes were actually recorded some time back, but we've been sitting on these until the imminent release of the printed edition, which should be soon. The good friends of Jackson Elias would like to thank our backers for funding the podcast. If you would like to become a good friend of the good friends of Jackson Elias, just follow the Patreon link from blasphemoustomes.com. And once again, we have a new Patreon backer to thank. Where do they keep coming from? I, I'm not complaining. I'm really not. I, we are so, so grateful to each and every one of you. And you know, as we said over the last couple of episodes, since we started using this new recording equipment, you know, this has all come out of the money that you've given to us. We have other things in mind uh, for, for using some of the money that you've so generously given us. And really, you know, we are quite moved and humbled by just how generous so many of you have been. Anyway, speaking of Patreon backers and the fact that we have a new one, we have someone to thank. It's a big thanks to Paul Morgan. Indeed, thank you very much, Paul. Yes, thank you, Paul, and cheers. Cheers. <laughs> That's all you need to know about 7th edition, or is it? If you need to know more, let us know. <laughs> Ask away. But until then, it's goodbye from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Insectivorous. 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 Right, from the top.